Heavenly Father, we just love your grace. We love your kindness. We love what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. And we love the truth that he's coming back again and we're going to be his forever and with him forever. And Lord, we know also that your grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And that bit we find much harder. So pray that this morning you take us on a journey of uh, gracious and willing and grateful obedience to you so that as a community we're transformed and your light shines brighter in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we had an interesting back and forth about this passage um, this week between Nicola and I um, on the rotor. Originally, uh, Nicola was down to do it, but then I'm away preaching away next week. So I said, oh, I could do it. And then Nicola was like, uh, no, I'll, I'll do it after all. And then she was like, no, Richard, you, you do it again. Um, so we've had a great demonstration of being subject to one another um, just over this preaching over the last fortnight or so, backwards and forwards, uh, like a yo-yo on who's going to do the passage. And you might think that's because it's a hot potato. There's some pretty difficult stuff in here. Last week, we were talking about trigger warnings in chapter one. There's a few of those coming up this week, um, and it's, a, it's an interesting passage. But I want, I want to try and get us into the context and get us to get the, uh, the juice out of this passage for our own sake and edification. Who's it being written to and why? First question, we've already seen a bit of that in the video. It's being writ written to what Nicola described as a macho man, Titus, who's in charge of the island of Crete. He's a brute, if, uh, if the quote is anything to go by. But he's been redeemed by Jesus, and he's now trying to live for Christ. He's a young man running a church. He's been asked to appoint elders over these household churches of maybe 10 to 20 people. And he's, he's been responsible for sort of sorting out the church there. And Paul wants him to know, Paul the Apostle wants him to know, that he has to do one key thing, come what may. It's in verse 1 of this chapter, and it's right at the end of the chapter as well in verse 15. You must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine, he says. And then at the end, he says, these are the things you should teach, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. Don't let anyone despise you. So the key thing this young guy has got to do in this community, intergenerational community, is to keep teaching them. Now, why does he have to keep teaching them? There are two main reasons. One is to provide the inspiration to them to live life well, and the second one is to make sure they're living life well. Now, both of those things, it's easy to go off on the boil on, isn't it? If you've been a Christian at all, if you've come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there's probably been a moment in your life when you felt incredible inspiration about the gospel. Maybe it was the first time you understood what's coming in verses 11 and 12 and 13 here, you understood the cross of Jesus. Can, can you remember that? Maybe uh, like I did, you went with someone to see the passion of the Christ and you were just blown away by the physicality of what Jesus of Nazareth endured on the cross for you. Maybe you're younger than that and someone taught you that God loved you and that he died for you and you're like, oh, that's amazing, he wants to be my friend. Maybe someone explained to you what it was like for Jesus not just to be uh, beaten in the ways that Mel Gibson describes in that film, but also uh, much more fundamentally to be separated in relationship from his father. Maybe you've, you can sort of 
begin to imagine what would that be like to be in a perfect relationship with your father and that to be separated from on the cross. It's like a bereavement moment on the cross and you thought, wow, he paid a lot for me there. Paid a lot physically, he paid a lot emotionally. Maybe it was when you realized that he was rejected by his friends and even the people that he'd had communion with, the Last Supper with, uh, included among them was someone who betrayed him and others who said, I never knew him, I never knew him, I never knew him. Maybe you were gripped by that. Or maybe it was even beyond that when you realized that on the cross, he who had no sin became sin for you. And Jesus didn't just hang there as a man uh, dying a shameful death, mocked and possibly naked, abused, uh, pillared, whipped within an inch of his life, but he also inhabited in his body all of the sin that you have ever done and the person sitting next to you has ever done and billions of other people have ever done. And if you can imagine that moment of shame where you know you've done something wrong and suddenly it dawns on you that you've really done something wrong and multiply that by 10 or 12 billion people's experiences, that's what Jesus perfectly drank into his body on the cross in one go, utterly alienated from God, utterly sinful. He became sin, and the wrath of God is met out on him on the cross so that you and I can go free. Now, that past story is inspiring, isn't it? My goodness me, someone did that for me. And the future story is equally inspiring. That's what we get in, in verses um, 12 to 14 as well, where it talks about waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great and glorious Jesus. He's coming back again. And we're just waiting for him to come again. And as far as Paul's concerned, it could be just round the corner. He could be coming on the clouds on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday back in the first century. But it's such a compelling picture that he just wants to be there. And the entire way he's going to orientate his life in the present is based on gratitude for the past and looking forward to the future. You see, the Christian gospel is not about a life worth living now. It's about a life worth living forever. If it's only for this life that we've been saved, we are the most stupid of all people, says Paul elsewhere. It's only because it makes sense forever that it's worth anything at all. And it's the resurrection of Jesus that proves that he's risen from the dead and that he will come again. And that's a whole another story. We're not going to go there now. But what then of living now in the moment, inspired by the gospel that he saved us, and paid such a price for us, and that he's coming again, he's going to sort out the mess of this world, inspired by that, how then should we live? And Paul's got one basic thing to say, is that God offers salvation to all people, a salvation that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The main thing he's got to say is that this gospel works now, not by giving you everything you've ever wanted and everything you've ever dreamed of and self-actualizing yourself in any way that you want to and making you healthy, wealthy, and prosperous now, but by giving you the grace to do something more fundamental than all that. Have you ever like, taken a look in a mirror and gone, not sure about that person? <laughs> I mean, I'm not talking about January weight measures here and that sort of thing. 
But more fundamentally, that sort of inner look in yourself and go, oh, crikey. Am I really just the sum of the mistakes that I've made in life? Am I really just so weak, so vulnerable, so pathetic sometimes? Does anyone else have those sort? Yeah, maybe you don't. Maybe you're one of those people who are, I'm good, I'm powerful. But, you know, it's often we look at ourselves and we go, not quite sure I make the grade on everything, yeah? And Paul says the gospel teaches you to say no to each of those things that actually could be the source of incredible shame and embarrassment and regret in our life. It teaches us, in a key word, self-control. Now, self-control is an amazing thing to have and ridiculously hard to come by. You only have to use a pair of scales to, to see how hard it can be to come by. But in, in any area of life, it's difficult, isn't it, to be self-controlled, whether it's an addiction to, to a phone or, or whatever it may be that you have. Hard to come by, but it says the gospel is the power to change our level of self-control. And he says, look, because the gospel can give you power to actually be self-controlled and to actually be transformed and actually live what he calls godliness, i.e. a life worth living, a life in all its fullness, godly life bubbling up in you. Because the gospel can give you godliness inside you, it's an amazing gift for the now as well as for the future. And because it's so amazing, don't you want all the people around you to have it as well? That's what grip Paul. I don't know if it grips me, I don't know if it grips you, but it gripped him. He said, Christ's love compels me to share this gospel with people. It changes people from the inside out. We've got so many things in January and all the magazines on the shelves telling you how to change yourself from the outside in by a few more disciplines. He says, this can change you from the inside out. Because when you know you're that loved and precious and special that someone would die for you, and when you know he's coming back again and it might be tomorrow, the motivation to live life well is totally there. But we want to do it in such a way that it's attractive to people around us. And we're going to need people to remind us that it's worth it. Because a lot in your culture will tell you it's not really worth it. Just live for yourself. Haven't you got the right to do what everyone else does around you? Haven't I got the right just to live for number one, to look after me? Haven't I got the right? And so that's the sort of the setting, that's the sort of the background for this chapter. Now, into that dilemma and that dynamic, Paul then offers a bunch of teaching to people in terms of their household lives and their work lives which could be really helpful for us, or it could leave us going, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> it depends how you read it and apply it. And so let me try and walk us through it and see if we can apply it in a way that is helpful and relevant for the culture that we live in today. And so we're going to start in verse 2, and it says, Firstly, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and endurance. You saw from the video already that the, the classic image of, of manliness in Crete was based around the Greek god Zeus, the man who could just do what he wants, have his wicked way, disappear, and be gone. 
not at all self-controlled, not at all temperate, probably not worthy of respect, and certainly not sound in faith, in love, and endurance. He was a come and go, a Johnny come lightly, and, and disappeared. And so there's a model of manliness that people had on the islands. And he's saying, look, teach people that this is not the best way to reflect the character of God who saved you. This is not the way to live. Tell them, tell them again and again to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and endurance. Friends, when you meet someone like that, an older man or woman who's run the course, isn't it inspiring? <laughs> I mean, isn't it? Can you picture someone like that who's run the course well and faithfully down the years? It's hard to name names, and it's certainly always bad to heroize people because you never know what's going on in their hearts. Um, and we were talking last week about leaders who stumble and fall, and you wouldn't have known it until they stumbled and fall. But yeah, we, we had a lovely few people come and speak at our weekends away over the last few weekends away. People who seem to have run the course for a long time. Hard to put a label on older, isn't it? I guess in this culture, older is a bit like it is in South Sudan. Anyone over, over sort of 40 is older in, in South Sudan. People didn't live as long as they did today. Think of you know, people like Nabil, who's spoken at our weekend away, or Sandy, or, or Andrew Dow. People who seem to have lived well for a long time. And people who are personal to you. It's inspiring, isn't it? But character is gained over a lifetime and it's lost in a, in a moment, isn't it? There's often a build-up to the moment where it's lost. So you need to be reminded, even if you're running a good course, keep going. It is a great joy when someone gets to their final hour and can truly look back and say, I've run the race well. That is a prize worth living for well now. Younger people in the room today, me, it's worth getting to the end saying, I've run the race well. Absolutely well. And this is all about character. All about character. Wherever you've come from, whether you've stumbled and fallen, whether today you know your life's in a mess, the future's there before you. you know, some people who still impact us today had atrocious starts to their lives. St. Paul had an atrocious start to his life. He went around killing people. The guy who wrote Amazing Grace had an atrocious start to his life. But a lot of the legacy that we have today is his great hymn. So run the race well, however dodgy the journey's been so far. I can always remember that one of the points in my life where uh, I was repenting as a young new Christian, the person who came to talk to me, who found me in floods of tears, was the organist who was in his mid-70s. And he said, it doesn't really get much better, Richard. <laughs> it's still hard in your 70s to choose what's right. I can remember the older guy in a previous church in his 80s who didn't sleep in the same room as his wife because he was addicted to pornography in his 80s. It's easy to go one way or the other, and the more you go one way, the more cemented in the pattern you get. The more you walk towards light, the more cemented towards the light you get. It's part of its habit and character. Get good character, and make sure there are people who keep calling you on it so you don't just stumble and fall. 
Okay, second group of people is the elder women. And he just says, please be reverent in how you live, not slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but teaching what's good. Some of it is proactive, getting on and showing other people how to live well. And some of it is about taming the tongue, not slandering. And in particular, he sees them as having a ministry to younger people in the church. And the last few weeks, I've become aware of a couple of, uh, of ladies who are older in our church, not elderly, but older, and mentoring some of the younger women in their 20s and how impactful this mentoring has been. We've been doing the Mentoring Matters course in church exactly for that reason. Actually, God wants to put us in community. A lot of how we live in our society separates us into little blocks and people just like us. But the intergenerational mentoring has an enormous impact. So if you're older and you've learned to be wiser over time, learning how to do things through things like mentoring matters makes a huge impact. Now, Paul's image here uh, for the younger women is that they will be self-controlled and pure busy at home, kind, and subject to their husbands. And this obviously has trigger warnings all over it to us. First thing we need to say is, who is Paul writing to here? He's writing one-to-one to another younger leader. This is not him in pastoral mode to a woman who's being abused at home. It would be a very different set of speech that he gives in that mode. The broad brush is learn to be subject to a husband. The pastoral follow-through, we'll see over the page in a moment, in the way that he deals with Philemon, a slave owner, and Anisimus, a slave, a very different sort of mode of talking. But it's meant to be subject, wives to husbands. Now, if you know Paul well, you'll know that in Ephesians, he also says the same things of husbands to wives. Submit to your wives, or submit to one another out of obedience to Christ. And he says, wives, submit to your husbands as well. So what is this? Because take it out of context, you've got a horror movie, haven't you? From sort of a historical horror movie of some nasty, malicious husband saying, the Bible says you're subject to me, and beating someone up. And that's awful, isn't it? And that's clearly not what Paul's got here, because he's saying that the outcome of this is that no one will malign the word of God. If it's carte blanche for a husband to beat up a wife, that's going to lead to people maligning the word of God. It's not what he's talking about at all. What he's talking about is a deliberate choice to love your neighbor as you love yourself, to put someone else's needs ahead of yours. And the same is true for for guys as well. See, if you live in a household, in a workplace, in a community, among friendship groups, where you're always after what you can get out of it, your rights, what's going to happen to that relationship over time? It's sort of doomed in a way, isn't it? You might manage to negotiate your way through contractually, but covenantally, out of sacrificial love, that takes each one of you going, I will prefer the needs of the other person. That's tough. That's a tough call. And in a culture where the men have been used to being Zeus-like and seeing that as a role model, it's going to be radically countercultural for someone not to go, I'm going to exert my rights and fence off my little emotional reality away from you because you might hurt me, and instead say, actually, I'm going to be subject to you and see what happens. It's going to break down a negative cultural thing. 
Now, you're going to have to do the hard work to interpret this into your own situation. Now, whatever that may be. But what would it mean to not prefer your rights, but to prefer the rights of the people around you in whatever context that is? And how might that transform relationship? Just think about it from the other point of view. If the person that you're in a relationship with, of any sort of relationship, behaves to you in a way where they're looking for your needs above theirs, how would that make you feel? It's a wonderful thing. It's a releasing thing, isn't it? But it's a difficult thing. And that's why Paul says we need to teach that sort of thing again and again. And again, he asked the young men to be self-controlled. Similarly is the word, implying to also put into practice the stuff that's going on ahead. One thing I love about verse 9, though, is that Paul wants to make it really clear to Titus, the leader, that he can't teach you do it uh, and I'll do my own thing. He can't teach one rule for you, another rule for the leaders. And we face that culturally this week, haven't we, in, in royalty and in government, what it feels like when people say one thing and expect another thing from, from people and do, do another thing themselves. And that always lets us down. And he says to Titus, look, as a church leader, it's easy to end up feeding on the sheep rather than feeding the sheep. So you're going to have to set an example. And we saw that last week, the high standard he holds Titus and the elders to of love, self-control, and discipline. So then we get to the world of work. And the world of work in the first century, as you know, was effectively one of of slavery. There were were a few freed people who were workers, uh, military people, but other people in the world of work were slaves to the household that they were in. If you were serving a house, incidentally, that didn't mean just serving two or three people in in a little building. Serving a house probably meant serving a a household, which was a workplace, like an industry. Uh, So if you were where it says earlier in this about um, setting an example in home, uh, busy at home in verse 5, that implies actually being involved in workplace, not just sitting back and darning socks or something. Um, So in the workplace, Paul says this, Slaves, be subjects to your masters in everything. Try to please them and not talk back and not to steal from them to show that you can be fully trusted. Now, once again, this is a massive trigger warning, isn't it? We were talking about it in our small group on Tuesday night. It was good to, to name it, put it on the table and say that this is, this is a loaded term and clearly a term that's been used for incredible abuse, incredible and horrific abuse within the British Empire, among many other empires down the ages. Slaves be subject to your master, carte blanche, to do what I like. But look at the end of the paragraph. It ends up, if you do this in every way, they will, it will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. And the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive is not about a nasty slaveness, but it's about freedom and liberation and joy. So this attitude was supposed to be countercultural and transformative, but not an inflicting one that masters were supposed to use to impress upon people uh, a rule, but rather one that we as workers uh, choose to have the right attitudes. We'll see it over the page in a minute in the book of Flying Lemon, but think about our attitudes in, in work or with uh, people that we're working with. My attitudes when I'm looking after my children. If I do unto my children as I'd have done to myself, how will that transform my parenting? 
if I do to my boss or the trustees of the charity I work for, as I would have done, how does that transform how, how I relate to the trustees? They can't see me most of the time, so do I just get away with things? Or do I work as if working for the Lord Jesus himself? And that's the sort of attitude that Paul's trying to encourage from workers. What do you do when no one's looking? How do you build up good character? So there's nothing to distort the gospel because the sort of person you are in the workplace carries with it a sense of liberation, joy, freedom. You're not controlled by the situation you're in. You're free from it. But does this mean that, you know, we can't have trade unions, we can't answer back, we can't have uh, law reform in terms of the workplaces? Well, on the one hand, for Paul, he thought Jesus was coming back so soon, it was almost like, park it, it doesn't matter. You know, the second coming is going to happen really soon. So look, just hang on in here, Jesus is coming back. But as that time has stretched from crucifixion to second coming, we've had to begin to sort of work these things through, haven't we? You know, what do we do while we're waiting? What do we do in the meantime? What do we do in this longer time period? And actually, a lot of the labor reforms have happened because Christians have said, this isn't good enough. The prison reform, because they said, this isn't good enough. The education reform, because they said, this isn't good enough. And it's good to try and bring about change in society now, bring the kingdom of God on heaven as it is on earth now. That is a good thing to do. And let's see what Paul says to a slave owner over the page in Philemon. The book of Philemon is a little letter. A slave has run away, a guy called Onesimus, and he's come to faith through Paul elsewhere. And Paul's writing to his master, Philemon, and he basically says, look, if you consider me a partner, uh, if you consider that you owe me your own life, uh, would you please receive back this slave as if you were receiving me, Paul, whom you owe everything to? That's the sort of radical equality Paul has. He says, let's subvert it and make an equality going on. There's a radical equality that he wants to bring. But he's sort of like, in the meantime, let's just get people the gospel as much as possible. So how do we land it for ourselves today? Because human rights have been one of the great progresses, I suppose, of the Enlightenment, haven't they? And you rewind back to the Middle Ages, you had no rights at all. The lord of the manor could chop your head off if you wanted to and get away with it. There was prima nocta. They could do whatever they wanted to you. And rights have given us increasing opportunities. And they're good things to hold on to. And in many ways, they're kingdom things to hold on to. We wouldn't want to rewind that clock, would we? That progress that we've had. But what, what do we hold on to most? Do we hold on to our rights now? My self-determination, my space that I've created for myself. Or do we hold on to, there's a bigger picture than that, and that's informed by the gospel. And Paul wants to say to us, I think into the 21st century, he'd want to say something a bit like this. Look, guys, your culture's come a long way. Isn't it wonderful that you're not, at least most of you in the UK, in positions of slavery, although some are. Modern slavery is a real thing. It's wonderful that most of you aren't in a place of slavery. That is a great joy to celebrate. It's, a, it's wonderful, I believe, that there is not the inequality between men and women that there was in the first century where a Jewish person might pray, I thank you, God, that I am neither a dog nor a woman. And Nicola's going to be talking about this in a couple of weeks' time on a big questions on, on the role of women in the Bible. I think he would celebrate these things that we see as our key advances. 
But he would still say, above all things, don't hold on to now. Because I've seen a bigger dream. I've seen a bigger vision. I was on my donkey on the road to Damascus and I saw a light from heaven. And it said to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard to kick against the goads. And I saw Jesus in his light. And I saw Stephen when he was martyred and I saw something like an angel sort of rising him up to heaven. And then I had a dream and I saw uh, the third heaven and the seventh heaven and I was taken up into the heavens. And I know there's something much bigger than this to live for because Jesus rose again from the dead. This is not all you're living for. You don't have to eke out your life here and just suck as much out of this life as you can, holding onto yourself tightly like this. No, let go. Let go of your rights. Lay down your life because there's a bigger reality to live for and it's far more real than this life. You're just living in the shadows now. What's to come is what's real. This is just the shadows. And the cross paid a price for you so you could be free forever. Remember the cross, he'd say. Remember your future. And because of that, forget this life now in a much part. Let's make sure as many people as possible get a chance to know the peace, the godliness and joy that you yourself have experienced. Shall we stand together?